Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a warm welcome again to this 2016 series of Edinburgh Gifford Lectures. My name is David Ferguson. I'm Professor of Divinity and a member of the Gifford Lectureship Committee. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome back our distinguished speaker, Professor Catherine Tanner, Marquand Professor of Systematic Theology at Yale Divinity School, as she concludes her series on the theme Christianity and the New Spirit of Capitalism. Uh, the lecture is being recorded and the video will shortly be available online on the university's Gifford website. Uh, tonight, let me say our format is a little different. Uh, we will not be finishing with the usual Q&A session, but instead there will be a vote of thanks offered at the end of the lecture and then we shall proceed to a drinks reception in the atrium, to which you're all warmly invited. This will provide an opportunity to meet more informally with Professor Tanner before her departure. Uh, there was some anxiety before I arrived as to whether the drinks had arrived, but uh, the secretary has given me an encouraging nod, which I, I take it means that uh, wine and soft drinks will be served an hour from now, so you don't need to leave Um, it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome her to this final lecture. Uh, Professor Tanner has deferred a number of questions as she's gone along, but has promised an answer uh, to them in this final denouement. So we look forward to tonight's lecture with much anticipation. Its title is Which World? Please welcome back Professor Tanner. Thanks uh, for that, David. And again, let me thank uh, the principal and the whole Gifford Selection Committee, uh, both present and past, for this uh, incredible honor. <clears throat> in, a way, in ways that I'll now address more explicitly, these lectures have already been exploring the new work ethic of finance-disciplined capitalism. And they've been trying to dissociate Christianity, in particular Protestantism, from that ethic. Like the spirit of capitalism that Weber described, the new ethic of finance-dominated capitalism certainly remains a work ethic, as uh, we've seen in lectures two and three especially. We've also been exploring across the whole of this lecture series so far the way this new work ethic structures time. The earlier work ethic itself was in some sense a time ethic, and once again, as we've seen, this feature of the old ethic is maximized in the new. One must make the most profitable use of time, along with everything else. What remains to be discussed, the specific topic of this lecture, is the way the work ethic of finance-dominated capitalism is individualizing in a highly moralizing way. Finance-dominated capitalism uses a variety of institutional means to make individuals accountable for their own fortunes, the bearers of either praise or blame. Economic success or failure becomes one's personal responsibility, revealing all one needs to know about who one is as a person. Such moralized ways of evaluating individual success or failure figured prominently in the old Protestant work ethic and are found, once again, in exaggerated form within the work ethic of finance-disciplined capitalism. Moreover, the moral, this moralized way, moralizing way of relating to oneself now has everything to do with how one relates to others. 
Within finance-dominated capitalism and individualizing moralism with respect to oneself, very obviously both presupposes and implies a certain way of relating to others. Relations with oneself are fomented by and in turn reinforce the manner in which finance-dominated capitalism structures one's relationships with others. Just because it isn't simply formative of individual persons, the particular aspect of the new spirit of capitalism that we're now going to discuss works to constitute a whole social world. This indeed is the world that in every one of its respects I hope to show Christians have reason to oppose. The ways in which Christians bring together relations to oneself and relations with others have the potential to form an entirely different other world, a world by way of which this one might be called fundamentally into question, an other world by way of which this one might be called to account. I'm going to spend most of my time today uh, saying more about a Protestant anti-work ethic, since I, since I think I've uh, already said quite enough to make you eager for such an anti-work ethic. Uh, but I do have to make a few brief remarks about the institutional social mechanisms in finance-dominated capitalism that make people personally responsible for their own success or failure, primarily through work on themselves, as we've seen. In, I have to do that in order to set up this uh, anti-work ethic to come. All these mechanisms are used, as usual, for cost-cutting and performance-maximizing uh, purposes. First of all, um, states, nation-states and corporations, simply leave people to their own devices to manage their own lives, hollowing out social organizational responsibility for individuals is what's happening. The community won't help you you need to fend for yourself in taking the steps that nation states and corporations want you to. Second, both states and corporations single out for, single out for attention uh, individuals uh, and, in their, and, and in that sense individualize them. Performance pay is a case in point. Every effort is made to evaluate individual performance at work and match individual pay to it. State welfare provision also tends to individualize persons in a moralizing way. Individuals are not due welfare benefits in virtue of their class membership simply because they have a right to such benefits as citizens, for example. Instead, a citizen is able to claim benefits only in virtue of having made a kind of individual contract with the state and in that sense, he or she claims them as just such an individual. The state offers benefits to a particular individual, not to a class of persons, once that individual agrees in other ways, in other words, to make a return for them. Not in money, which people in welfare, on welfare don't have, but in the currency of their future actions, so to speak. In return for benefits, welfare recipients can be required, for example, to look for work and to take any job offered, no matter how poor the pay. Welfare benefits become, in effect, loans, obligating the person who has become indebted to society in accepting them to future performance of the kind of behavior that society demands as an appropriate payback. Third, state and corporations force one to be, one to be individually responsible for one's own life by putting one in competitive uh, relationships with everybody else. This means, first of all, that one is in a more, that one's competitive relationships extend to more people. 
For example, in the labor market, one is in competition not just with members of the local community for job openings, but potentially with every worker on the planet. And competition becomes unusually direct, that is no longer mediated by impersonal market mechanisms. Performance pay using relative benchmarks for superior performance is an easy example of this sort of competition that's turned now into a kind of direct rivalry. I'm skipping around here because this is a 70-page uh, <laughs> lecture, which I'm uh, excerpting, fortunately for you. Uh, performance pay uh, set to uh, relative benchmarks. These relative benchmarks, what does that mean? One's employer doesn't determine, for example, that three hours is the minimum time necessary to perform the job well. That would be an absolute standard of performance. With everyone matching that time or going below it, getting a bonus. Instead, bonus-worthy performance is, is determined by surpass, surpassing one's co-worker's performance, which is a relative standard in which excellence is established over and against what other people do. The standard for excellence being relative, if someone by superhuman effort manages to turn in a time of two hours while everyone else comes in at three, that one person could very well enjoy a bonus, a bonus for excellent performance alone. The use of bell curves in management decisions about employee pay and retention heightens the same effect. To be safe, an employee has to come in above the curve, that is, above the average level of worker performance. Coming in below it means a pay cut and put, puts one in line to be fired. But the curve shifts. The average level of, level of performance goes up as all workers make greater efforts to beat the current average. And as workers who repeatedly fall below such an average are progressively let go, leaving only the very best workers behind. Just because the performance average is constantly being ratcheted up by these means, at some point or other, unless one can keep pace, one is eventually quite likely oneself to fall below the average and be let go. Everyone is potentially under threat from everyone else in such a pay and retention system. The gains made by, one co by one's co-workers can only portend one's own downfall. Fourth, uh, finance-dominated capitalism makes individuals unusually dependent on others for success in ways that, ironically, force one to try to distinguish oneself from others, to act in a significant sense independent of others, in order to profit oneself. For example, one's own ability to profit within financial markets that I described a while ago depends in an unusually intense way on the actions of others. Whether one, whether one profits or not has everything to do with what other people decide to do. If they buy, if they buy what you've already decided to buy, believing it to be a good investment, then one profits. To the extent that others decline to buy, one's own profits suffer. Suffer. It's not enough, therefore, to buy the stock of a good company. One needs other people to do what you are also do doing, just ideally not ahead of you. Indeed, in financial markets, one's own independent thinking is often, often overwhelmed and buried within commonly held opinion. For good reason, since following the herd is typically the way one profits in markets that move in tandem with market opinion. It doesn't matter what one thinks oneself if other people don't share that opinion. If you decline to buy because you think you know better than everybody else, that just means you lose out on the run-up in prices that everyone will enjoy, everyone else will enjoy without you. Market participants therefore of, often act against their own better judgment and have the tendency indeed 
simply to, to discount their own opinion to the extent it runs contrary to common opinion. A consensus about market opinion can solidify in this way even when the large majority of market participants think in their heart of hearts that nothing lies behind it. That is, when each of them believes that common opinion to be false. This exaggerated dependence on others forces one to act independently of others in order to profit oneself. One has to be quicker than everyone else, buying and selling before others do, in order to turn any big profits oneself. I was talking about this uh, in the lecture on financial markets. Similarly, in one's work life, only by, similarly, in one's work life, profiting oneself is ensured only by refusing to admit one's dependence on others. One convinces one's boss, say, that one was responsible for all the really important contributions that helped one's team su succeed in the assigned project. And for that reason, one's own remuneration goes way up while theirs takes a hit. And one may very well believe this oneself. The whole work environment encourages one to think that one is simply being paid what one deserves, rewarded for superior work performance that makes such pay one's due. In sum, one can, say, one can say hard work is still made the reason for success in finance-dominated capitalism, with an insistence every bit as strong as anything to be found in the old Protestant work ethic, despite the fact that unlike earlier forms of capitalism, little of the profit-generating mechanism of finance-dominated capitalism gives one any good reason to think so. The forms of employment that make the most money in finance-disciplined capitalism are, for example, what's called scalable, that is, the money one makes in them does not, as a matter of course, increase with the hours one works and the effort one puts in. Reward in such jobs is simply not commensurate with time and energy expended. No direct causal connection even exists between the two. Those, ma those making the most money in finance-dominated capitalism may be working all the time with incredible intensity, but that's not, not often the actual source of the profit that's generated. Commonly, there's at most an incidental connection between the two. Thus, a financial trader may spend all his time glued to a computer screen on the lookout for that perfect moment when an arbitrage opportunity reaches its maximum. But when the time comes, a billion dollars can be made in a moment at the mere touch of a button, following a signal produced by a computer program that the trader doesn't even understand. Nothing could be easier or more lucrative. In financial markets, one is indeed guaranteed to turn a hefty profit not in proportion to the enormous amount of time and energy expended in the pursuit of it, but simply as a function of the enormous amount of money one has at one's disposal. It's well known that simply by making huge bets, one can influence the direction of the market in one's favor. The price of the asset purchased has to go up simply because one has purchased so much of it. People working in jobs where monetary reward is indeed a function of the time and degree of effort they put into their work for example, janitors, food service providers, and so on, typically do not make much money at all, relatively speaking, when compared to top earners. Everyone in all lines of work may be putting everything they have into their work, but the actual rewards prove to be wildly different in ways that run directly contrary to the supposition that rewards are commensurate with hard work. It's only the people with scalable jobs in which profit cannot be directly correlated with time and effort expended who reap the big bucks. It's also hard to see the merit in success that's dependent on chance timing. 
The importance of luck in financial markets directly undermines the idea that one has merited success due to one's hard work. Of course, even the acknowledgement of luck doesn't prevent people from taking credit for it. One can congratulate oneself, as market traders often do, for being at the right place at the right time, for being smarter, faster, and more clever than all those other people who turned out to be suckers, selling their stock too late after a stock, mar after a stock market decline was well on its way to the bottom. The winner-take-all character of financial, uh, finance-dominated markets is another case in point. It's the very nature of such markets to exaggerate the significance of very small differences. For example, when performance pay uses relative benchmarks, the very few workers who end up keeping their jobs may be only very slightly more productive than all the rest who have been let go. It's very hard for this reason to see how people rising to the top in such markets could possibly be meriting the rewards that distinguish them so sharply from other market participants failing to do so. Those at the top get everything, while the rest get nothing. If what I've been su suggesting over the course of these lectures is correct, that's all I'm going to say about finance discipline capitalism today. Uh, if what I've been suggesting over the course of these lectures is correct, there's good reason to think that a work ethic of this sort conflicts with fundamental Christian commitments. I'll make this argument more explicit now and develop it further. And I'll take a breath. Uh, first of all, there is surprisingly little reason to think Christianity has any direct interest in developing a work ethic at all, whatever the particular form that ethic takes. Certainly prior to the Reformation in the early modern West, Christianity valued specifically religious pursuits, such as contemplative prayer, over work for economic ends, and viewed the latter with suspicion. If there was a work ethic here, it was exceedingly minimal and highly negative. Economic labor was of no particular interest in its own right, and simply to be avoided whenever it posed, as it always seemed to, a possible impediment to what was of real concern, a life dedicated to God. To the extent hard work stripped one of energy to pursue religious matters and distracted one from them, it was not a good thing, indeed at its roots, dehumanizing. Someone, of course, had to do the hard work necessary to ensure material well-being, but that work was clearly of lesser value and often, therefore, simply ordered in teleological fashion to higher religious ends. It took place for their sake. Some people worked in fields and shops to provide others with the leisure to pursue knowledge and love of God full-time. The Reformation didn't so much dispute this ranking as extend it over every sphere of human life, the economic included. Service and worship of God remained of paramount importance. It's just that now anyone could take up that pursuit in and through their everyday activities, apart from the need for specialized religious ways of living dedicated to it. The ethic of the monastery, which downplayed the value of economic labor in favor of spiritual pursuits, was not so much repudiated as extended to cover everything outside it. Only in that way did monastic life itself come to be condemned. Monasteries were a grave mistake to the extent they implied a restrictive effort to claim a monopoly on the sort of life that could be dedicated to God. The fact that devotion to God could be pursued just as well in activities that were not themselves specifically religious did do something to elevate the value of those activities, but very often not at all directly. For example, the character of economic activity itself, its involving hard work, say, was not what made it of any religious interest. 
The fact that one could express one's devotion to God in and through it was all that gave such work its religious value. The same old religious concerns about work, concerns about its capacity to enervate and misdirect one's energies could therefore readily resurface. Such concerns are, one would think, only the more pertinent now, given the extraordinary demands placed on workers within finance-disciplined capitalism. It's hard to see how the complete exhaustion that comes from spending 24 hours working could contribute in any positive way to one's religious life. Indeed, the very fact that economic activity was not considered valuable in its own right was key to what Weber thought made certain forms of Protestantism so economically significant. Hard work is valuable in economic terms to the extent it serves the end of bringing about material well-being. But capitalism, to get up and running, required people to work hard simply for hard work's sake, without any particular concern about enjoying the fruits of their labor. Capitalism, for example, required people to save rather than spend, to exhibit a certain asceticism, in other words, and in that way amass capital for investment purposes. But work could become something to be pursued without regard for its, un for its usual economically beneficial consequences only when people did it for other reasons, reasons that had nothing to do with their own material well-being, for example, to satisfy a religious interest in knowing whether they were saved or not. Capitalism was in this way furthered by people who were in effect willing to sacrifice their material economic interests to religious ones, people with religious interests strong enough to override any simply economic interest in meeting their material needs. Of course, this sort of devaluation of economic activity on its own terms can be lessened to the extent such activity becomes itself a way of serving God. Especially in some forms of Lutheranism, one can serve God directly in economic pursuits because those are thought to be what God wills for one, part of God's specific plan for one's life. Working very hard at one's job would amount in that case to an appropriately heightened form of service to God, a way of proving one's dedication to the God who assigned one to that specific task. Such a direct attribution of religious value to economic activity importantly complicates any sharp disjunction between religious and this-worldly ends, which might indeed have beset the Protestant ethic in its original form. Rather than an, in effect, endless deferral of the enjoyment of salvation until life after death, well past the end of one's working life, working out the salvation that is yours in Christ also surely means working now for your own material benefit and that of the world. Salvation doesn't simply await the resurrection of bodies to come, but is presently at work to transform them for their own good. The gift of Christ that enables personal transformation should be at work throughout the whole of life to transform for the better economic activities, too. The problem with the direct assignment of religious value to economic pursuits is the way it provides a religious sanction for whatever form of employment society happens to saddle one with, no matter how limiting or degrading. What's established is assumed to be proper because a part of God's providential arrangement of the world. If salvation includes the material well-being of bodies, and the Christ who brings about that salvation is at work now to transform lives, this sort of sanctification of established forms of economic injustice makes little sense. If, as that other form of Christianity insists, one can somehow manage to serve God in the exhausting and demeaning line of work currently assigned to one, 
How much the better one might, might one do so in a way of making one's living more in keeping with God's own efforts to bring about the well-being of all? The current, the current economic organization of the world would have to be changed to further, to further God's intentions if they are of that universally benevolent sort. Presumably Christ in enabling our radical self-reformation is also therefore giving us the power to make those changes too. Religious ends still take priority here over simply economic ones. For that reason, as we saw in lecture three, one's religious priorities always sit somewhat loosely with one's economic commitments. They certainly relativize the importance of any one of them and countermand simple absorption in them. But these efforts are a function of the way those religious commitments include economic ones within a project to transform life as a whole. A changed way of pursuing economic well-being is a positive part of that religious project. While I've described a fundamental, fundamentally Protestant religious project in terms redolent of the enterprise self of contemporary capitalism, it doesn't conform any more to capitalism's work ethic than it does to its sense of enterprise. The ethic of this religious project is just as odd, so odd indeed as to amount, I'll suggest now, to a kind of anti-work ethic. This is fundamentally, once again, because success in such a religious project is not one's own doing. Christ is the motor that initiates such a project and pushes, along, pushes it along towards completion. Success in such a project is therefore nothing one can take credit for oneself. Because Christ brings it about, such success cannot simply be one's own individual responsibility. While it does require one's efforts, it doesn't take place behind one's back, so to speak, success is no longer contingent on those efforts. Profit is secured by someone else. It's taken out of one's hand, hands at the most fundamental of levels, one is taken care of by God. One therefore has nothing to fear from even the bleakest moments of one's own sinful incapacity and failure. Any success achieved in the pursuit of one's religious project does nothing, therefore, to establish one's personal worth over and against others. Indeed, to the extent one can claim credit for it, such success never amounts to much. Compared to the sinless standard of Christ's own life, the significance of relative differences of achievement by graced sinners is reduced to nothing. All fall radically short. Indeed, a life fully dedicated to God, as Christ was, is an all-or-nothing affair at its root. One is either defined by such a way of life by virtue of one's relation to Christ, or one isn't. As a qualitatively distinct form of life enabled by Christ's life within one, it's fundamentally not the sort of state that can be approximated by degrees or approached incrementally, as I said before. The degree of success that marks our own achievement concerns only the degree to which our lives manage to exhibit such a qualitative change of state, which is Christ's doing and not our own. But whatever the success, success achieved on that level, even were one successfully to display new life in Christ throughout the whole of one's life in every respect, that still does not permit one to distinguish oneself in any fundamental way from others. They are capable of the same thing you are, and with Christ's help will one day achieve it too, by virtue of what you share with them. Gone, there, gone thereby is any point in trying to gain, gain some sort of comparative advantage over others by besting them in the pursuit of religious ends. One's individual worth as someone graced by Christ 
is not fundamentally dependent on how one stands relative to others. The wider world's search for distinction in competitive contests is repudiated in this way without setting up a new, specifically religious form of them. Concern for relative position-taking is in fact discouraged altogether here. What matters in the end is one's relation with God, one's value in God's eyes, and not one's relative worth measured against others. Valuations based on relative position are certainly never severable here as they are in financial markets from the underlying asset, so to speak, God. However far people may sinfully stray in their relations with one another, they never float free in purely self-contained, purely self-referential fashion apart from that one God in and through, in and through whom they ultimately find their value. The follow-the-leader effects of everyone's competitive attempts to keep up with the profits of others in finance-dominated capitalism is short-circuited here by the contrarian possibilities of such a standard of value independent of one's position in relation to other human beings, God. There's no profit to be gained here from simply matching the behaviors of others by following their opinions about what's a good bet. Nor is one impelled to search to secure one's worth in the eyes of others by proving one's relative value against them. Working harder, for example, to distinguish oneself from others does not make one a better person in religious terms. Indeed, that is just the sort of competitive contest excluded from the kingdom of heaven to be eradicated one day from both the new heaven and the new earth. Aside from the matter of how such achievement is measured and attained, it also makes little sense to assume individual responsibility for success or failure, given the way this religious project singles one out, not as an isolated individual, but as a member of a pool. For all one's differences from others, which will of course come out in the distinctive way one pursues such a project, one remains a creature just like them, a sinner just like them, an object of God's redemptive concern just like them. One's differences from others have the capacity neither to overshadow nor pull one free of those shared conditions. Christian beliefs about a shared origin and fate, irrespective of, ir of individual circumstance or individual merit or demerits, entail in some a refusal of the privatizing of risk and reward at the heart of finance-disciplined capitalism. One fails, morally and otherwise, in the company of others, and one gains salvation by God's grace rather than on the basis of any distinguishing features that make one stand out from the crowd. If Christianity encourages one to think of oneself as part of a pool, it nevertheless does not do so in any way that would lessen or submerge one's own individuality within the group. In creating and redeeming one in Christ, God doesn't simply see one from within a general perspective encompassing the whole, but sees one as the particular person one is. One specific character is a person. What sets one apart from others is the object of God's concern. Running directly contrary to work ethic, however, one's value in God's eyes is not conditional upon the particular, achieve, uh, particular achievements that distinguish one from others. One remains of value in God's eyes, the same object of concern to the very same degree, even if one fails completely, as everyone in some fundamental sense does, in the effort to do what God asks. God remains one's savior even as a sinner. Indeed, sinners are specifically the ones God comes to save in Christ in an entirely gratuitous display of affection for them. 
God does not love you more when you succeed than when you fail, if greater love means demonstrating some increased concern for your well-being. God doesn't, in that sense, love saints, should there be any, more than God loves, loves those whose ongoing failure in their religious project warrants continual repentance and supplication for divine mercy. If anything, it's the reverse. God's wrath is temporarily, for ultimately benevolent purposes, directed specifically against the self-righteous. It's not simply that God's love precedes its object in unconditional fashion. It's also, God is also not creating and saving persons for the sake of some objective that they, they remain responsible for carrying out. God's purpose in creating and saving is not, for them to, is not for them to engage in some sort of productive activity, and therefore it's very hard to see how a work ethic could be a fundamental uh, part of any of that. God doesn't create and save people because God needs something from them, giving them orders, do this for me, do this for me, make this for me, orders that they then have to work hard to try to meet. God doesn't act out of need in that sort of purposive way in order to gain something that God lacks apart from our efforts. God does want the people God creates and saves to do something, most fu fundamentally to live their lives in complete dedication to God's will for them. But that is not the reason why God creates or saves them to begin with. God does so simply to share God's life with them, so as to see the fullness of God's own life reflected in something that's not God. While we were created by God to be productive of our lives in that sense, to make ourselves over with God's help into God's image, we're not necessarily called in any, in any other respect to be productive, that is, productive of anything else. There's no reason to think, as the anthropology of production, typical of capitalism and also of its Marxist critique, as, you know, as the anthropology of production typical of capitalism does, that we can produce ourselves in God's image only by producing other things. Some sort of work on things is obviously presently necessary to enhance the material well-being that is to be included in our imaging of God's own life, a life of supreme well-being. But typically, the need to work, especially when it takes the form of hard labor, is associated by Christians with the fall, with some sort of disordering of the world as God intended it. There was certainly no need for extreme effort in Eden. By, funda by fundamentally undermining in this way an anthropology of production, the heightened work ethic found in finance-dominated capitalism is pulled out by its roots. To contest a capitalist work ethic, it's no longer sufficient to insist that personal fulfillment go by way of one's work in any ordinary sense of that. That is, if the work ethic of contemporary capitalism is to be effectively overthrown, one can no longer try to eradicate work's alienating qualities by making work itself enjoyable, a meaningful expression of one's personal talents and ideas, and thereby an end in itself rather than some merely instrumental means to a lifeless, inconsequential product, the widget, cardboard box, or safety pin. This is just what contemporary capitalism itself promises to do. Indeed, what it demands, take pleasure in the work itself, Consider it a valuable form of self-expression, an important road on the way to one's own self-realization. Nor is it enough simply to extend one's productive activities beyond the limits enforced by gainful employment. 
carving out time and ed energy for what one would really rather be rather prefer to be doing all things considered if one ever had any time or energy left over maybe cutting back on work assuming one were still paid enough to avoid starvation in order to make room for alternative forms of production of a more homespun, less capital-intensive sort, like craft work or bread baking. Uh, nobody thinks that's funny? All right. Or, or carving out time and space for oneself outside of what's been colonized by paid employment, maybe in bed between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning, so as to experiment freely in working on oneself in ways not subject to others' control, and for ends established solely by oneself and one's freely chosen companions. Were they to be generally feasible, which is highly doubtful, all such tactics in seeking freedom in work simply presuppose work's value, its value-producing capacities, if not in external products, then on oneself. Or one, can try to, one could try to inhabit, for purposes of resistance, the very realms that capitalism, with its insistence on productivity, expels. Perhaps one could defiantly try to make the most of one's forced unemployment, wearing one's lack of productivity as a badge of honor by lazing about in obviously unproductive pursuits, and where necessary to support oneself, taking out loans one has no intention of ever paying back. These are all actual suggestions. I'm not going to use this uh, in the literature. Even more defiantly, perhaps, one could call a general strike, simply refusing to work or to pay back any of the loans one, one was forced by need to assume. Unfortunately, for this sort of strategy, exclusion from gainful employment has become a primary way of making money in finance-dominated capitalism. That's indeed what forces people into debt, where the, more, where the real money is to be made. And failure is the very thing that the instruments of money-making and finance-dominated capitalism leads one to ex lead one to expect. That expectation is the under expectation of failure is the underlying reason, for example, why non-performing loans have almost always already been fobbed off on someone else before they become worthless. Anticipated failure is indeed turned into its uh, a source of profit. It's why the bonds created by bundling loans can have such a high interest rate. In general, one cannot overthrow what one leaves in place by vacating the field. Or in the case of calls for a universal debt and work strike, one seems to be left with a simple negative. If no work and no debt, then what? What's to replace it along the lines, um, along the Christian lines I've been developing here is a community forged according to very different assumptions about how one's relations to oneself bear on relations to others. This anti-work ethic has, in short, its own social implications and presuppositions with the capacity to form a kind of entire alternative world. Thus, this Christian anti-work ethic has certain implications for one's sense of dependence on others. One depends on God rather than on oneself, and presumably that promotes a willingness to recognize one's dependence on other people, too. The profit-making mechanisms within finance-dominated capitalism that require the refusal to acknowledge such dependence by claiming simply for oneself what others have helped one achieve would in that way be hindered. The religious project is a cooperative project. Other people are in it with you and have the capacity for that reason to help you by, for instance, supplying examples of what engagement in such a project could look like for better or worse. And more than that, one's very dependence on God requires some degree of dependence on others for its communication. 
God is the only one capable of empowering such a project, but God never enters within one's life directly apart from the human mediation of it that stems from Christ. Christ's own influence is irreplaceable, but upon his death, his very own influence is conveyed through the other human beings who form a community of life with him in a very literal sense, humans who are dead to themselves in that they now live his very life, their own lives in that way in the process of being fundamentally remade as a kind of extension of his. Human beings are already being remade in Human beings who are already being remade in him are necessary to convey the very influence of Christ himself to others in Christ's physical absence. But it's also important to see in this connection how dependence upon God does not collapse into dependence upon others. One is thereby not encouraged to submerge oneself within the community of others for the sake of one's own profit in the way the extremely intense dependence on others in finance-dominated capitalism encourages. Everyone else, aside from Christ himself, fails in the religious project that Christ empowers. Everyone else continues, to some degree or other, that is, to struggle against sin. To the extent that they influence others by virtue of their own persons rather than by virtue of Christ's own influence within them, they therefore tend to impede the religious projects of others just because of the sin that remains in the way they manifest Christ's influence upon them. Indeed, even were they to conquer sin entirely and show forth Christ with complete transparency in their own lives, they would, they would hamper the religious projects of others just to the extent that influence on others were to make their own persons the focus. A focus on themselves would mean their own influence had replaced that of Christ they would have become themselves the motor for transformation of others in a kind of sinful substitution for Christ. One should never indeed be dependent on others in the way one is dependent on God. Doing so turns those others into idols with a self-defeating, destructive effect on one's own religious project. While they may indeed be helping one to succeed, the others upon whom one depends cannot secure one's profit as God does. They are just as vulnerable to sin as one is oneself, and for that reason, one must constantly work to shore them up in contravention to the fact of their own lives if they're to pretend to perform the sort of work that only God can do for one. One is thereby enslaved to such idols, forced into constant, unending, and ultimately futile work for the benefit of the very supposedly saintly persons that were supposed to ensure one's own profit. Although one is part of what is in principle a mutually supportive community, I'm talking about the church, and I that wasn't in which people try to aid one another along the way to a common goal, one can, once the power of Christ is communicated to one by others, go it alone if necessary. Without that is any further help from them of any intentional sort. One can, in other words, make progress in one's religious project while surrounded by sinners who influence one, therefore, in highly distorted ways by, for example, drawing attention to their own saintliness in self-congratulatory fashion. One can make progress if necessary alone since one is empowered to do so by Christ and not by them. Uh, the religious project of Christians, therefore, does not stand, stand out from that of the enterprise self of contemporary capitalism simply by being a cooperative project in which every person has his own particular contribution to make. Although profit comes to be privatized by refusing to recognize it, financial capitalism is in fact a cooperative project of that sort too. 
No one can produce anything of value in this form of capitalism or any other apart from the activities of others converging, often through the use of machines, in a coordinated effort to bring about what none of them could alone. They may not be intending to help one thereby, but if what I'm saying about Christian community is correct, Christians may not be very obviously doing that either. Their good effect on others, for example, their communication of Christ to others, is very often a kind of unintended consequence of their own horribly flawed efforts to lead a Christian life. Individuals can succeed alone in a religious project because of what empowers that, dependence on God rather than dependence on other people, and it's perhaps by virtue of that that the Christian religious project differs most fundamentally from a current capitalist one. What is also unusual about this communal body compared to the social forms of finance capitalism is its specifically non-rivalrous manner of social coordination. Personal rivalries over relative contributions or achievements within the body are prevented here because social relations with others are always being mediated through some external third thing, God. Members are not, in fact, directly coordinating their actions with one another based, say, on their own estimations of who is succeeding or failing in such a religious project, in what respect, or by how much. Each one is instead fundamentally trying, as that particular individual with that specific history, to conform his or her life to God's will. And in the process, as a kind of secondary effect, their respective actions become, to the extent they ever do, mutually supportive of one another. That is, the more each is successful in such, a support, in such pursuit, the more it's likely that others will be too, by way of their influence, their own efforts complementing or supplementing those of others, and so on. The God who stands outside these human relations is in this sense entering within those relations to do the coordination of them. Although relationship with God is communicated via other persons, one's relationship with them for that purpose does not require one to be actively and directly engaged with them in any other respect. To the extent that they do so properly, others are trying indeed to communicate a relationship with Christ that turns one away from them to God. In this sense, one comes in the first place to be actively related to others socially only through the relationship that each one has with God independently of others. Although everyone does want what everyone else wants here, to live a life that's transparent to the life of Christ within one, the members of the body do not in fact compete with one another for those same goods because of a certain detachment from them that the relationship to that third thing God enables. God enables one to give up one's attachment to achievements that others would also like for themselves. If one is genuinely committed to God rather than to the human good God makes possible, say saintliness, one should be willing to give up that saintliness, let someone else have the distinction of displaying it, wherever attachment to saintliness threatens to displace commitment to God. One might object here that because social relations in Christianity as I've described them go by a way of something outside of them, the community formed exhibits no especially strong horizontal ties. But in the Christian case of mediation of social relations by something outside of them, one is not simply partaking separately of what one at most may know everyone else is enjoying separately too. One's own enjoyment is to the contrary, directly fed, magnified by theirs. The experience, in short, is something like watching a sunset with somebody else. 
One is very glad someone else is there to share the experience. The external mediation of relations to others here by way of a third thing, the sun, hardly means one is indifferent, indifferent to those others, isolated in one's own private experience. One cares to the contrary about them in the character of their own experience. If, for example, something is hindering their enjoyment, say they're in pain, it would be better for all concerned to remedy that. A genuine community of enjoyment is being set up here in virtue of the peculiar character of what externally mediates it, something that can best be enjoyed with others, indeed, the more of them, the better. There's no point, indeed, in aiming at the sort of good that discourages rivalry if one only ever enjoys it alone. Enjoying it alone hides its character. Trying to do that, enforcing that, insisting on lonely enjoyment, distorts that good's character. It shows one fundamentally misunderstands it. The character of God is that establishes the proper way in which uh, one relates to God, makes all the difference here, as Augustine well knew. Thus, if one were related to God as a part to a whole, because, as in Manichaeism, divinity was itself like something extended in space, subject to partition, and found in greater or lesser quantities, depending on whether circumstances were hostile or favorable to it, then yes, possession would amount to the always potentially conflict-ridden matter of who can amass the most of it. One gains more of God by, by literally having more of God. On a Christian understanding that was influenced by Plotinus in the main, to the contrary, the God who is nothing like any of them, and in that sense outside them all, can be enjoyed as a whole by each and every one of them through a kind of direct link in each and every case with it. The very same object of love and knowledge is made the basis of a common vision and desire. The community here is intense. People are united, that is, in ways that overcome all division. But such community is never predicated upon the erasure of the individual places from which in each, each case desire and vision begins to end in God. What brings them together to unify them is simply the object upon which they all rest. As the friends assembled by Augustine, and who later joined him as a bishop in Hippo did, Christians are, and here I'm quoting Peter Brown, united by the vision of a single beloved, a supreme beauty, ceasing to be like Manichees, they leave behind intense horizontal bonding thought of as a blending together of like minds that blurs their differences. Each of them instead strains to reach a beauty whose sheer delight renders each of them forgetful of his or her own self. All are drawn together to share in a common joy, a shared passion, which blots out the normal sense of mine and yours, unquote. Even now, at moments, this sort of experience of God as a whole can be shared in the way Augustine shared, shared it with his mother at Ostia. Ideally, one day, that day that lasts forever, everyone will enjoy such an experience of God together. God will, in fact, be possessed as a common object of love and knowledge by one and all on that day. So, what can be taken away from all this? What have I demonstrated over the course of these lectures? I hope I've shown the coherence of a whole world to be entertained at least as an imaginative counter to the whole world of capitalism as it presently exists and, and pretends to be an all-encompassing whole to have no limits, nothing outside itself. While I hope I've convinced you not at all like this world of finance-dominated capitalism, the new one operates not at a remove from this one, but by cutting across it, traversing it to disruptive effect 
a very, along the very line of the ethics of self-transformation that's the relay or transfer point of its various dimensions, the hinge or axis around which the whole turns, that aspect upon which this entire old world has riveted itself. If I'm right, such an, alter such an alternative world requires no resuscitation of a now-dead body so as to resonate with present possibilities for resistance. This other world has been present in the past and is, and is still here. No deferred utopia for simply sublimated expression now, but already at work in the present with a voice whose force has yet to be extinguished. Thank you. It's my own pleasant duty Finally, on behalf of the university, to thank Professor Tanner for this 2016 series of Gifford Lectures. Over the past fortnight, she's provided us with a rich, condensed, and sometimes bracing set of reflections. These have challenged us to consider the ways in which our economic system has produced a striking shift in our patterns of behaviour, self-understanding, and relations. She's argued her thesis forcefully by exposing ways in which economic forces collectively shape and sometimes distort us, perhaps more than we would care to admit. If the diagnosis of our contemporary condition has been gloomy, there has also been the steady presentation of an alternative, more hopeful vision that's grounded in the beliefs, symbols and practices of faith. Her theology is steadfastly one of grace, and I believe it's strikingly Lutheran in some respects. It liberates us from the burden of saving ourselves and the world, but also releases energies for making some constructive difference in the time and space allotted to us. The maintenance of faith-based convictions and the attempt to bring them to bear upon these seemingly intractable economic realities has been the decisive contribution of her lectures. Where Max Weber once saw a continuity of capitalism and religion, Catherine Tanner has relentlessly insisted upon a discontinuity. In doing so, she urges us to recognise the availability of an alternative vision and so to find ways of reversing the cause-effect relationship of economics to human consciousness. She's exhorted us to maintain loyalties that will shape us to better effect than poorly regulated financial markets. Not too many theologians have been emboldened to enter so far into the discourse of contemporary economics. This is difficult territory and can easily result in charges of superficiality or misunderstanding. But Professor Tanner has mastered her subject over many years, and though she wears her learning lightly, these lectures have been informed by intense research of the subject her manuscript is already at an advanced stage and these Gifford lectures will soon appear as a monograph with Yale University Press. We can look forward to their appearance and to the wider discussion which these will surely occasion both here and in the United States. 
This series of lectures has also been characterised by its online reach. There has been significant activity on blogs, Twitter and other social media. And for the first time, perhaps, in the history of the Giffords, we've achieved an instant global effect. So my thanks for this not only to our lecturer, but to all those who have contributed to the online activity, tweeting, even as the lectures have been delivered, others who are blogging, and of course David Robinson, who has orchestrated some very useful online discussion. We couldn't have done it, however, without you, the real audience, who have attended so diligently and have posed such a range of pertinent questions uh, throughout these two weeks. Professor Tanner and her partner, Professor Tonstad, have been most welcome guests this past fortnight, and they have made much of their time here. They have walked the streets and hills of Edinburgh and learned a great deal about our city, This has included inter alia a visit to Lord Gifford's grave on the Calton Cemetery, uh, only to discover, sadly, that the cemetery is currently closed. (laughs) So you can visit neither Adam Gifford nor David Hume at present. They also attended the kirking of the Scottish Parliament in St Giles yesterday, which was something of a culture shock, I think, for North Americans. And even more culture shock, they've taken a trip to Tyne Castle on Saturday afternoon where they witnessed a particularly dire performance. (laughs) Now that the lectures are over, they're setting out to walk the West Highland Way and we wish them a dry and sunny week, (laughs) free from blisters and midges. It's been our great pleasure to host them We hope that they'll be able to return here before long. There's now an opportunity for you to meet them at our final drinks reception in the atrium. And before we leave, I invite you again to show your appreciation to Professor Tanner for her series of Gifford Lectures.